in Jesus' name. But I want to thank you for bringing us to church this morning, for giving us another opportunity to fellowship with you and with each other. As we are about to listen to your word this morning, Lord, we ask, O oh Lord, that this message shall be life to us. Father, we ask that you will open our hearts, Lord. Let the entrance of your word bring light to us this morning. And let it be a light, O oh Lord, that we can in turn give shine to the rest of the world, Lord, in a way that will show forth your praise and bring glory to you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Um, I'd like to thank God for this opportunity to share the word of God on this Young People's Sunday. I'd also like to thank our daddy, Venerable Professor Samike, and the other priests, the church council, and everyone who contributed to make today possible. The topic for today says, put fire in your center. We've watched the drama, we've seen what they did. So the question now is, what does it mean to put fire in your center? Now, I think it is right that before we, before we move forward to read the text, or to read any other text that we have to read this morning, we take a little trip down history to understand exactly what a sensor is and what its uses were. How people have used it throughout history. So when I was doing this research to kind of know a little more about what a sensor is, I found out that the sensor had been used in different, uh, different religions, different eras, different um, cultures for slightly different reasons, but it was, it, there was one common thread for the use of the sensor. It was a way to connect to the spiritual realm, a way to connect to a realm beyond our own. So, and this was kind of the same thing that the Jews used it for in the, in the Jewish practice. The Jews used the censer as a way to offer up worship and prayer to God. It was, it was the duty of the priests at the time to, to use the censer. The, the, the priest was supposed to take the censer, put coals in it from the, from the altar of burnt offerings that was in front of the, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, as some versions put it. And they, go, they take that coal, go into the the holy place every morning and every evening and offer up incense to God. They pour incense on the coal and it reacts with the coal and sends up smoke in the air. And this was seen as a form of worship, as a form of sending the prayer of the people of Israel, the saints, up to God. And so God had very specific ways that he wanted this thing to happen. He had very specific ways that he wanted the priests to use the censer. Now there was a censer for a censer made of brass for everyday use for the the one that the priest used to go into the holy place every morning and every evening to burn incense before God was made of brass. 
And then the one that they used during the Day of Atonement, if we read Leviticus 16, we see the, the practice of the atonement that the priests had to do. There was a day mapped out every year, every year, for the priest to go into the most holy place. And that, that was the only time he was allowed to use the, gold, the golden censer, the censer made of gold. And um, so we see, and God had a particular formula for the, the incense he wanted to, the incense he wanted to, the priests to burn before him. It wasn't just, there were different recipes for making, uh, making incenses. But there was a particular formula in Exodus 30 or so, there was where God explained the particular formula he wanted them to use. And that particular recipe was not to be used by any other person, was not to be used by any other person in the assembly of God, not even by the priests for any other thing other than to burn incense before him. And also, he instructed that you, they shouldn't in turn use any other uh, kind of incense from anywhere to burn incense before him. So, why it is important for us to know this is that when we come down to our text, when we come down to our text for today, uh, we see where was read in our lesson what happened to the people of Israel when God sent out a plague to destroy them. And then Aaron put fire in his censer and went to make atonement for them. Now, if we read, we can't read the entire chapter because of time. There are 15 verses here, but I'll just explain, um, kind of summarize what it was talking about. There are essentially two, two parts to this, to this um, chapter. There are essentially two stories that took place here. In the first one, we had three people Three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and 250 other elders, people who were supposed to be, to be at the head of, of the assembly, people that the rest of Israel looked up to. The Bible called, called, some Bible called them men of renown. Some, Bible, some other passages used other phrases, but the point is, these were not, they were not, say, laymen in the, in the midst of the assembly. So, Korah, Dathan and Abiram and these 250 men came to Moses and Aaron and they were saying, they were essentially telling them that they had set themselves up against against uh, well not set themselves up but that they had seized power for themselves. You know, that they were, they were becoming an authority that God did not give them. That everybody was holy and everybody was essentially um, consecrated to, do, to take Sensor, the sensor put fire in it and conduct all the other priestly duties. Now, this was a sin because, first of all, Korah was a Levite. Korah was from the tribe of Levi. He was somebody who should have known better, who I believe knew better, but for whatever reason, he decided to come against the people that God had put in that place of authority to tell them that everybody was holy, that everybody could do um, just as much as they were doing. And so this angered God. And then, when we read on, we see where um, Moses instructed them. said, okay, since you say you're holy, come out the next day. Come out in the morning with each of you with a censer. He was talking to the three men and the 250 people. He said, come out with your censer and come and burn incense before the Lord. 
And whoever God cho- chooses is the one who is holy, is the one that who, who God has set apart. And so, the next day, they came out. He also instructed Aaron to do the same thing. So the next day, all these men came out and stood before the tabernacle to burn incense before God. And because what they were doing, they had started by, already they were already in the scene of presumption, of assuming that they were consecrated, that they were qualified to do that. And then when um, Moses told them to come out with their, incense, their censer and to burn incense before God, they actually went ahead to do it. You know, so essentially what happened there was that these men offered strange fire before God because their hands were not consecrated to handle the censer. They, they offered strange fire before God. We, this has actually happened before to two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. So I'm sure Aaron wasn't surprised about what happened that day. What happened was that, the, first of all, the ground opened up and swallowed Koran and Datan and the men who spearheaded that revolt. Swallowed them, swallowed their families, swallowed their possessions, swallowed their men, everything. And then fire came out from the presence of God and destroyed the other 250 men. And then God told um, Aaron, I think it was Eliezer that went ahead to use the the censers that those men had burnt, had used to burn incense, hammered them into sheets and then used them on the altar of burnt offering. And the scripture there says that it was to be a sign to the people that no other person, that no other person except Aaron and his descendants were to bring incense before God. Hallelujah. So the next, the next day, which is the place we read, the people of Israel now came out the very next day and we're accusing Moses and Aaron again of killing God's people. You know, saying that you have killed the people of God. And this triggers God, God's wrath again. And he sent a plague into their midst. But then what do we see that happening here? Aaron went ahead, hurriedly went and brought his censer, and stood in the midst of people and burnt incense before the Lord. And the Bible said that he atoned for them and the plague stopped. Now, what I want to point out here is that these are two contrasting stories with the censor in the, in, the, in the midst of it. In the sense that in the first story, the use of the censor brought judgment. It brought condemnation. In the second one, it brought salvation to the people. So what was the difference here? The difference, it, it means it is not about it's not about burning, just, you know, burning censor for the sake of the rituals. The question is, are you consecrated for that purpose? Are you qualified for it? The first men were not, but the Aaron and his descendants were. And that is why when he burned the sen- he used the, the censor to atone for the people, God actually relented and stayed his wrath. So, this now... Ask, make, will make us ask when we read this place. You can ask, you can be asking yourself, what was it about? What was it about the priests of the time, the priests in the Levitical priesthood that were that was so special that Aaron could do something like this, that God could uh, could listen to him when he burnt censer, he burnt uh, incense in censer. Now, the the 
system of the Levitical priesthood or such that God had set, had set Aaron and his descendants out from the tribe of Levi. The, the other families in the tribe of Levi had their own purposes. They had their own duties in ministering to the people from the, in the temple. But Eli, um, sorry, um, Aaron and his descendants were the ones who could officiate in a special way, in a unique way. This was God's way of showing the difference between what was holy and what was unholy. These people were consecrated to him. And so they were the ones that he allowed to, to, to offer him worship and praise and sacrifice on behalf of the people. Whenever the people wanted to, wanted to uh, give sacrifice for one reason or the other, if, if you go through, the, through Leviticus, you see many of the sacrifices that... God had instituted that the people could give for different reasons. Whenever they wanted to give sacrifice or they wanted to come to worship or to offer prayer or to, for any reason, they went to the priests. They didn't walk into the temple themselves to, just, to go and do one thing or the other. They went to the priests. The priests were the ones that officiated whatever it is they wanted to do. And so, the priests were mediators between man and God, and between God and man. So the, we find that the people of Israel went to them whenever they needed to offer worship, to offer any kind of prayer or anything. The priests were the ones who sent that up to God. And then, through the service of the priests, the people received pardon from God. Different cases received deliverance, received blessings. So the priests were the, they were the mediators. They were the one, the middlemen in between God and man. Now, the, why, why, why was this uh, system? So why did God set up this system like this? It doesn't mean that he did not want people coming close to him, per se. It, it's not that he did not um, want an intimate relationship with us, because that's what he has always wanted. But... Here, during the era of this priesthood, and given the, the sin nature, because God cannot walk in iniquity, and there, there was a certain distance between him and man. And so, we see here that God was using the, the priests, the, the service of the priests, because first, before the priests could even perform any service, they, had, they themselves had to be consecrated. They had to be cleansed of their own sin so that they can be holy to perform those services. So the, God used the priests as, as a kind of way to keep, a, to keep the relationship between him and his people going. Amen. He did not want to, to... He could not talk with them one-on-one. He could not relate with them one-on-one because of their sin. But he used the priest as that medium to maintain a relationship with them while waiting for the promise of Jesus. Now, uh, while the priests were there to maintain um, kind of communion and relationship with God, between God and the people of Israel, I think their lives were also um, an example to show how the kind of relationship that God wanted to have with man. It was it was, in a sense, a glimpse into the intimacy that the sin nature 
had destroyed when it came in, into play. We see this right from, if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we go to Genesis, and um, we see where the Bible implies that um, the, the kind of relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. It says that um, God, God, the relationship was so close that God used to come down himself, come down and walk with them in the cool of the garden. That was the, the kind of relationship they had. It was, it was a more intimate, more personal relationship. But after they sinned, after they sinned, what happened? Because the Bible says that God is of a purer eyes than to behold iniquity. Because he could not stay around that sin, because he could not continue to communicate with them in that manner, he had to make a decision. And the decision was that he chased them away from his, his presence. The, the, the punishment was that they were, there was a separation between them and God. There was a distance that the sin nature had created. So, after that happened, we see God setting a plan, setting in motion a plan to restore man to that relationship. Because that is actually the reason God created us. That is the kind of relationship we, we are created for. Amen. So, we see God putting a plan in motion to bring that relationship back. Fast forward to the time of the Israelites. Uh, we see what he is doing here with the priesthood. Because, first of all, the plan of God was, was, he, was he, he had a plan to reconcile us to himself. But then, because he is perfectly loving and perfectly just, he could not just say, uh, okay, I've forgiven, the, I've forgiven the sin of Adam and, you know. The Bible says that dis- disobedience to God is what, that is the definition, that's the textbook definition of sin. That is what it is. So when Adam and Eve disobeyed and did what God told them not to do, that, was, that equated sin. That equated sin and it had to be paid for. There had to be a consequence. And we know the Bible there says, when, when God told them that um, when you take of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that in that day you will die. When you read some other uh, versions, you find that the correct phrasing there is actually, you, the day you eat of this, you are going to begin to die. So it introduced mortality in a sense to us as human beings. So, but God was supposed to punish the sin of Adam and Eve. So, he didn't just want to wave it away because he could not. He's perfectly just. So, he set in plan in motion. The plan of Jesus was that Jesus was supposed to fulfill both his justice and his reconciliation. So, but then when we come down to the people of, of Israel and the priesthood and all that, we see the priests being the ones to do all these things on behalf of the people to offer sacrifices, you know, whenever the people sinned, they, there was a sin offering, they took an animal that was prescribed by God, and then they burnt it on the altar of burnt offerings and all that. And there were various steps they had to take for the, for the sacrifice to be complete and for the, for the sacrifice to be standing. So, because God had to punish that sin, but he could not, because he wanted to bring us back into a relationship with him. He could not take out 
that punishment on us just yet. Because imagine God is trying to reunite us with himself. But then he decides to take out the justice on us. There will be no one left to reunite. Are we understanding? So what he did was that he, through the, the, the Levitical priesthood and the old covenant, he brought in the system of the substitutionary sacrifice where they had to use animals. The way the Bible puts it when it was explaining some of these um, sacrifices, it says that whenever someone brought an animal for a sin offering, that one of the things they do is that before they kill the animal, the, the person will place his or her hands on that animal. That was a symbolism that the, the sin of the person had been transferred to the animal, and therefore the animal was going to pay for that sin, for that person's sin. So, but then, <coughs> we know that ultimately, rituals were not enough. The blood of bulls and goats were not enough to meet that, the, uh, God's perfect justice. They were not enough. They were not enough to cleanse us from sin. They were not enough to cause that change from within that God wanted. So that's where, that is where um, Jesus came in. That is where Jesus came in. At a the, at the point, the, the people of Israel, because if we read about the people of Israel throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament especially, they were, they were not strangers to rebellion. Amen. They had rebelled against God so many times that at a point it felt like, and it's as if when they were rebelling against God, they were, the more they rebelled against God, the better they became at offering sacrifices. Like, so it was a problem because it was the, the, the system of sacrifices and those rituals that God instituted was having the opposite effect on the people. Because the Bible says that our, our sinful, the law was weakened by our sinful nature. So the law could not meet because our sinful nature was that damaged and that broken and that horrible. So what happened is that God brings in Jesus as the solution to this problem because the people couldn't meet it. Somewhere in Isaiah, I think Isaiah 1, 1 verse 13, where God had gotten fed up with their, with their sacrifices and he was like, Stop bringing these sacrifices to me. They mean nothing. Because, because I think it's English Standard Version. I said, because you bring your iniquity in, into the solemn assembly. So there was, the people had become so skilled at it that they could offer sacrifices while living 100% in sin. While doing whatever they wanted to do. After all, what is the sacrifice? What is the... The penalty for this thing is just to go and bring one goat and sacrifice. And that's the end. So God did not want that. God wanted change at the level of the heart. God wanted us to change from within. And the law could not do it. The atonement that the priest did every year could not do it. In fact, in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 1 to 3. Hebrews 10, 1 to 3 says something about where Paul was talking about the atonement. And he said that if the atonement could actually meet the purpose for which it was instituted, it would need to be renewed every year. It would not, the priest would not need to keep going into the most holy place every year to offer that sacrifice again and again. So 
the fact that he needed to continue it was proof in itself that this thing could not meet God's purpose. Amen. So, what did God do? He brought Jesus. He, he wanted to, it was time to do away with this, what Paul calls in that same verse, a, a yearly reminder of sin. Because the Lord was just, he was showing our sin nature the more. He was making it more pronounced. And so, what Jesus did was, when Jesus came, the Bible calls him the one perfect sacrifice. The thing I like about it is that he's, he's not just the one perfect sacrifice, he's also our great high priest. Now, he fulfilled the requirements of the law so that we could set it apart and usher in a new era, a new covenant. That, would, that could not have happened unless the, the first uh, covenant, the old covenant, the, the reason God said his place had been accomplished. So when Jesus came, first of all, everything, his, his life, his burial, his resurrection, and his return to heaven, everything was significant for what we are, what we are doing here now as children of God. When he came to, to, to the earth, the Bible says that he lived a sinless life. He came as one in human nature. He lived a sinless life even though he was human, every bit as human as us. And he, he experienced um, the same emotions that we experienced. He experienced anger. He experienced hunger. He experienced sadness. He experienced sorrow. He experienced fatigue. You know, it, like he, he, no one can read the story of Jesus and say that he did not experience the limitations that were placed on us by this our human nature. So he was every bit as human. So when he lived that life and was sinless, that qualified him to be the sacrifice, the one perfect sacrifice the Bible calls it for, our sin. Amen. So we have Jesus shedding his blood for our sins on the cross. And then after he um, resurrected, he became what the Bible says a great high priest. Because if if we go back to the Old Testament again during the Old Covenant, we, we know that every time God wanted something from the people, He either wanted a sacrifice or He wanted whatever it was. He said there was always this idea that God is holy and God is just and God is perfect. And so He needed whatever it is that was offered to him to reflect his perfection, to, to, to reflect him. So, none of the, the bulls and the goats and everything that were sacrificed, none of those things could meet the standards of God. But when Jesus came and lived a human, it was important that he came to, God could have just, God could have snapped his fingers from heaven or something and saved us. He could have done that. He's God. He can do anything. But he decided to send Jesus in human flesh. And there were a few reasons for that. One of the reasons that was that so that it will be an example for us on earth that a human life can indeed, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be lived the way God wants us to live. If he had just done it from heaven, then maybe some people would have said, well, God has saved us and there is nothing left for us. We will not feel a sense of responsibility to carry on anything. It will just be, he has saved us, we are free, hallelujah. And then we 
You know, there will, there will be nothing tangible that we can take from it besides the fact that we have been saved. So he came to show us that, that a human life can be lived perfectly through the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, the, the, another thing is that he, the Bible, the, Jesus came to reveal God in a way that the law never could. Like he came down, I think it's somewhere in uh, Colossians 2. Colossians 2, that says that, I'm paraphrasing it, that says that um, Jesus is the express manifestation of God in human form. So, Jesus is, is everything God is. There are a few places where Jesus was talking and he said that he has come to do the will of his Father. In another place he says, um, he says, that I only do that which I see my father do. And I only say that which I see my father say. So, if you wanted to understand the character of God, if you wanted to understand exactly what God wanted from us, we didn't need to look any further than Jesus. That he was the complete expression of God in humanity for our example. Amen. And so, what this means is that he is both our spotless lamb in the sense that he was the one perfect sacrifice. If we read, um, if someone can help us read Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 14 to 15. Anybody, if you find it, just read it. Hebrews 10, 14 to 15. Hebrews 10, 14 to 15. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that, he has said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Amen. It says, For by one perfect sacrifice, which is Jesus, he has become the perfect he has been, he, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who have been made holy. So then the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I make with them after that time, says the Lord, that I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Now, what this place is trying to show is that after Jesus had handled our atonement, says now, with the help of, with the Holy Spirit now residing in us, the Holy Spirit was able to reside in us because Jesus had paid the sacrifice and made us um, clean, made us holy before the Father. So, the Holy Spirit will now come and write the laws, as opposed to, you know, laws that were written on paper or on a tablet or just a list of things that we had to follow. And that was it. Now, if the idea of writing the laws in your heart is that it's coming from a place of conviction. It is not tradition anymore. We are not just... Um, because what the old covenant was was essentially tradition. It was people come, they are, they've taken to heart the things that God said they should do. So we do this and do that. And whether he changed them from within is another story. But now, when, it, when God has written his laws in your heart, it means, the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it is not just... It is not just speaking. It is out of the abundance of the other. Everything that defines your life and your destiny, it is from your heart that it comes from. So it has to come from a place of belief, a place of conviction. 
And we know that since our heart is the seat of all our convictions, God had to take seat there. God had to take preeminence there. Because that's the only way there could be any lasting change in our lives. Amen. So, here he says, I will put your laws in my heart, in your heart, and write them in your minds. Which means, you will no longer do these things because I am forcing you. But because it is what your fathers and your great-grandfathers and your ancestors did. You're not, you're not just walking into indoctrination. You actually believe what you're doing. You're doing it from a place of purity, from a place of belief. So that's what this thing means. So we see that switch from the old covenant where they just had to follow a list of rituals and everything. And we come into this new era now where it has to be coming from our, from our hearts. I think one of the people that was praying today said something about... Uh, God searching our hearts. The reason he's searching our hearts is because he cannot search our actions because there's nothing... Yes, your actions have their use, but you can't search the actions for the action's sake. You have to search the action based on what is informing it, which is from your heart. So when God searches the intentions of our heart, he's trying to find out where our belief lies because that is what endorses whatever it is we're doing. Because it has been informed by our conviction. Amen. So, so God is, this, uh, Jesus is the spotless lamb. Jesus is our great high priest. Because since he was the only thing, the only person, the only entity holy enough to meet the requirements and the rituals of the old, of the old covenant, he had to be everything else. He was the great high priest. He was the spotless lamb. He was even the scapegoat, kind of. You know, when, when we read about, we go to Leviticus and we read the story of the, of the, the Day of Atonement, the rituals and how it happened, we see the priests going in. First of all, he had to kill, I think it was a bull, a young bull for himself, to, to atone for himself, then atone for his family, then atone for the people. And then after killing that bull, he would take the blood of that bull and go into the most holy place. Go into the most holy place and sprinkle on the mercy seat, the, the cover of the Ark of Covenant, kind of. That is, that is how God's mercy was being offered to the people, God's forgiveness. So Jesus now, being the only one holy enough to meet the rituals of the law, also had to be the great high priest. So while the old covenant priest went into the... the most holy place with blood that was not their own. Blood of bulls and goats that were not perfect. They themselves were not perfect, which is why they had to be consecrated over and over again and cleansed over and over again. But Jesus took his own blood, his own blood, which, could, which was the only blood perfect enough to meet this, the requirements of this law. And he went into the, the most holy place and he offered it before the mercy seat of God. Now, this is important because we know what happened during, after Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross. And the Bible says the, the curtain that was guarding the way to the most holy place was torn. Which means all of us now have access to the Father. In the old covenant, it was only the great high priest that could enter there. And he could only enter once a year. But now, after the work of Jesus, after God has made us holy and consecrated us, Unto his service, we can now come boldly before God to obtain grace and mercy. We can walk into 
the most holy place. Well, it, this, was, this was to show that, that that relationship in the beginning that God had with Adam and Eve, Jesus was the restoration of that relationship. So now we did not need any other mediator. We did not need anybody to, to, to tell, to go and tell God on our behalf. We could go to God ourselves in confidence and in boldness because we know what the sacrifice of Jesus has done for us. And this is why the Bible says in, in, in 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a priesthood of believers. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Those qualifiers are important because a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, the word royal there indicates a, a kind of, um, we, it was trying to show that we were heirs to something. That's the word royal. Then, a holy nation. God had always been trying to make his people holy. So when, which is something he showed with the priests. Something he showed with the priests because he consecrated them unto his service to, to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. So now that God has, that Jesus' sacrifice has opened the way to the most holy place, we are now a priesthood of what? Believers. So we can all go into the presence of God and seek his face for whatever we want to seek his face for. Amen. So it's very important that Jesus came, that he lived, and that he died. Because now when, when Jesus is, is, we can trust the work of Jesus now. We can hold on to it because he didn't, he didn't you know, it's like when, some, when someone... Um, when someone sh- you know there's a difference between sympathy and empathy when, you, when something happens to you and you you're feeling bad, you're bruised you're feeling overwhelmed, whatever and then someone comes, comes to you and you, tell, you share your story with the person and the person says uh, Chai, it's a pity, sorry oh. uh, the Lord will help you, he will do it for you it's not a bad thing that the person is feeling sorry for you right? but the person cannot help you beyond that but when someone can empathize, the Bible says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. When the difference between these people and Jesus was that Jesus wasn't bringing sympathy. He could empathize because he went through the same challenges as us. He went through the same temptations, you know, through the human experience, so to say. And he did not sin. Unlike the priests of, the old, of old who could empathize but couldn't really do anything about it because they were... They were sharing our weakness. But Jesus is a different kind of great high priest in the sense that he can not only empathize, but he has defeated all those weaknesses and he can help us through the help of the Holy Spirit to do the same. Amen. So, um, the Bible calls it a... a the, one of the comparisons, I think, the Bible made in... Um, trying to show the difference between the Old Covenant and the New, was that he called the Old Covenant a shadow of things to come. He called it a shadow, a glimpse. A, a, it's like looking through, a, through a, a painted glass. You won't exactly see. You may be able to tell the form of what you're looking at. You may be able to temp, tell a few vague details, but you can't really tell. Okay, if you, if you have, um, if you hang... Say you hung a cloth now in your, in your house at night. You hung a cloth behind somewhere in the house and then your security light is on. We've seen this before where 
maybe the, because of where the, the clothes is and where the light is. When the light is shining on the clothes, it casts a shadow on the wall. Now, if someone decided, came there now and decided to, to do an analysis of whatever was on the rope, was hanging on the rope, but then he only used the, the shadow as his reference, he will not get anything useful. You, yes, you may be able to tell, okay, it's a wrapper or a bed sheet or whatever the person hanged, depending on how the wind is hitting it, maybe it is yeah, whatever. I don't even know if you can tell anything from that. But you can, you can just tell very few things. But it is only when you actually go to the material and you touch it. And I say, okay, this is cotton or this is silk. The color is blue. The length is two meters. But do you understand what I'm saying? So it is that personal experience with that thing. You cannot judge from a shadow. You cannot use a shadow to judge the essence of something. So the, covenant, the old covenant with the help with the work of Jesus has come. It has done its job and it has left. And now, all we need now, through the help of the Holy Spirit, is the work that Jesus has done. Amen. So now that we have been made perfect, now that the image of God has been restored, now that we are, we are the righteousness of Christ, what does it mean for us? Does it just mean... Um, you know, praise God, we are done. We can now sit down and live our lives. God has saved us. Is that what it means? It means there is, there is a burden, a responsibility upon us as priests. In the same way the priests in the Old Covenant had a responsibility towards God, towards man, towards themselves. We have a responsibility as well in this New Covenant. And so, and so one of a few ways we can do it is we need to one of the things we can do is we need to, as priests, build up ourselves in our most holy faith. Let's, okay, let me, let me read it because of time. Build up ourselves in our most holy faith. Jude 20 says something important. Jude 20 says, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. What does it mean to, to build yourself up in your most holy faith? We know that after, and this is an important question because we live in a time where there are, especially for, for, for young people in the university setting, in career, whatever, we, we always have this push back against our faith, kind of. So you, you see a lot of young people that when maybe they were born into Christian homes and they truly did give their life to Christ and they are, they are born again, but they haven't built their faith. They haven't spent time in the Word of God. They haven't prayed as much. They haven't done any of those things. And then when they now get to the university, when one small uh, somebody turns and says they have evidence that Jesus didn't really die or just one small thing comes up, to push against their faith, their faith starts to win. So that is what the Bible is saying, that we should build up ourselves in our most holy faith. How do we do that? We do it by spending time with Jesus. We do it by reading the word of God. We do it by praying. Here it says praying in the Holy Spirit. And praying in the Holy Spirit here doesn't just mean tongues. It doesn't just mean praying in other tongues. Yes, that too, because you know there are some times where we don't know what to pray. And the Holy Spirit has to take over and make God transfer us. But here, what it is saying is, what it is essentially saying is, pray in a way that is guided by the Holy Spirit. In the, in the, the same way the Holy Spirit guides our lives. 
in the same way he should guide our prayers. Pray in a way that the Holy Spirit has to be involved. Do you understand? So if, are you, one of the ways you can gauge this is, are you just praying for yourself? If the only thing you do every day, you sit down, you spend two hours, three hours, the only thing you're praying is for yourself, financial breakthrough, job promotion, there's a problem there. Because it is, there's a selfish sense to it. But when you, are, you feel promptings in your heart to pray, not just for yourself, but to pray for people, to pray for people who hate you, people who have cursed you, people who told you you will never make it, people who have used your name for all sorts of things. You've prayed for the community, you've prayed for the nations, you, you know, and you just follow those promptings in your spirit to pray. That is how you know you're praying in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, there's also the ministry of, of reconciliation. I'll read it here because of time. Uh, it says, you see, Romans 5, 6, and then 8 to 10. You see, just, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were... God's enemies, when we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Amen. The two things I want to point out here is, the first place it says, you see, at just the right time, that why we were still powerless. Then in verse 10, it says, why we were still sinners. So, sinners in the sense that we were, our sin had kind of removed us from God. The word, we know what the word sinners mean. People who do not obey God. People who are not living in the purpose of God. But then, not just that, it was important to say powerless as well, because not just were they not living the way God wanted them to live, they didn't have the ability to, even if they wanted to do that. Which is why we needed the sacrifice of Jesus. So it says that he saved us while we were against him, while we were sinners, while we wanted to have nothing to do with him. And so it's important we know this, because it's called Ministry of Reconciliation for a reason. When you are trying to reconcile people, you are trying to get two parties to agree again, to come back together again. And so the reconciliation there is to preach, when you're sharing the gospel to, to unbelievers, you're sharing it in truth and in love. You're not going there to pour their sin on their face. You know, when you, when, and this doesn't mean we shouldn't address sin, because sin does separate us from God. It is important. It's a stumbling block to knowing Jesus. We should address sin. But the sense of addressing sin is that you're telling the person, Jesus can take care of this problem. You're not going to tell the person, no, nah, this is your sin. Eh? It's like, I don't know what to do about it. Do you understand? You're just, you just speak a message of condemnation and leave. And the person has no solution. You just came and told the person how sinful they are and left. Do you understand? So, truth and love in the sense that you are not compromising the gospel when you're preaching. You're not telling the person, it's all after repenting, it's all good. You know, after this, it's all, no more problems, no more, nothing. Just be coasting through life because we know that's not true. And at the same time, you're not preaching a message of condemnation. You're preaching that... We are from the point we were born, we were already on our way to hell. And Jesus is trying to save us from that path that we are already on. You are not preaching that God, is, that God is threatening to send us to hell unless we repent. Do we get the difference? So, that is what the ministry of reconciliation is. So, in summary, we have um, we've seen all the things we, we talked about now. We have understood how God has made us priests through the sacrifice of Jesus. 
and we understand some of the core responsibilities of, of priests, of ourselves, now that we are in the position of this priesthood. So we need to make sure, we need to ask God to help us through the Holy Spirit to not be lax in this situation, to not just sit down and do nothing. Because we know there, there's a responsibility, there's a burden. There are, there are, we can't even say that um, um, there is no one to reach because the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. Maybe because we are looking at the amount of churches that have been planted. The number of churches does not equate the number of souls saved. It's not the same thing. So you cannot be looking at maybe because the church is in any place you go tonight, you see church in every street, in every corner. It now means ah, there's nothing to preach again. It's over. It's, it doesn't work like that. You know, the Bible says that the Bible implies that the the, the harvest has always outnumbered the laborers. We need more people, if nothing else. And there is still a lot of work to be done. And we need to ask God to help us through the Holy Spirit to live in our full calling as priests. Let us pray. So I want us to reflect on our lives. Is there any way that we've, we've not lived in our full calling, but we've not understood exactly what it means to be priests? Is there any way we've, we've misused that privilege? Let's ask God to forgive us. Are there any areas in our lives that we know God it has been prompting us to fulfill our priesthood and that God has been prompting us to go and meet for one reason or the other. Let's ask God to help us. Let's ask God to quicken our spirits to be able to meet that need and perform that action. And if, if you're here and you haven't given your life to Christ for one reason or the other, maybe because you're not very sure what these church people are doing or because um, maybe someone has come and preached a message of condemnation to you or one thing or the other, maybe there are people whose lives are not who, who you think are Christians, whose lives are not in accordance with what they are saying. Ask God to reveal himself to you by himself. Ask God, tell him that you want to be for him but you do not want you do not want a haphazard commitment. You, you do not want to look at these things as the ultimate. Ask God to help your heart. If you have unbelief, the Bible says, it says that the Lord can help you believe, even in your unbelief. So ask God to help you. Ask God to open your eyes. Father in heaven, we thank you. As you have put a sensor in our hearts by Jesus paying the price of our sins, and making us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that we might put fire on this censer, that we might show forth your praises, that we might show forth your light who has called us out from deadness, who has called us out from destruction, who has called us out from darkness, into your marvelous light. Spirit of God, by that same Spirit that you raised Jesus from the dead, by that same Spirit that has Aaron put fire on the censer and ran and stood between the dead and the living and brought life 
and brought a stay to destruction and brought redemption and brought also deliverance. This morning, we willingly on our own stay up your presence, stay up your gift, stay up your willingness to act and we will listen and obey in our lives in the name of Jesus Christ. Every heart here this morning that is willing and obedient unto your word, Spirit of God, stay up that life again to shine, to carry the candle, to carry the censer, and run to the darkness of the world, and run between the living and the dead, and present the life and the light of Jesus, and make a difference, young or old, in the name of Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, by your enablement, quicken every heart here, quicken every life here, Draw us into your presence to receive afresh. And may we never be too quick to leave your presence. To run into the presence of phones. To run into the presence of the world. To run into the presence of the busyness of the day. Give us that consecration. To not only stay in your presence. Receive of you. Be fired of you. And we can have this sense of burning with light and with fire every day in the name of Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. This is our plea. This is our desire. Even so do, O oh God, to everyone. Rise us up from our complacency. Rise us up from our lethargy. Rise us up from our lukewarmness. And let the fire never keep us comfortable until we begun to burn, to shine, to make a difference. Because your spirit is upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Holy God.